Hi, Sydney. Hi, Andrew. Uh, and welcome everyone to the Shelter and Power podcast. Sydney and I are two students at the Harvard Kennedy School, and today we're going to be talking to people who are organizing with Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the Bay Area as they respond to COVID-19. We're both actually sheltering in place ourselves. I'm in Chicago, and Sydney, do you want to tell us where you are? I'm in Davis, California. It's in Northern California, and I'm sheltering in place with my partner, Ken, who you'll hear from in just a little bit. We're calling our podcast Shelter in Power because in this crisis that we're all going through together, we are also thinking about how we're building power for the post-pandemic future. We're also looking specifically at the Bay Area and talking to people who are organizing in the Bay Area in particular, partly because, Sydney, you, you have really strong ties to that community. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the Bay Area. I have a ton of family in San Francisco, Chinatown. Uh, my grandma lives in a single-room occupancy hotel and so really grew up in that context. Also. Uh, spent a lot of time um, as the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. So I'm really excited to dig in and to hear from two of my close friends about how they're uh, shifting their work uh, in this crisis and how they're thinking about the future. That's really great. I'm really excited to hear from both of them too. Let's get going and um, hear from our first speaker. My name is Alvina Wong. I'm with the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. I'm the campaign and organizing director. APEN has been around for 25 years, organizing and working with low-income Asian Pacific Islander um, immigrants and refugees in Richmond and Oakland, California, really looking at the intersections of pollution and poverty and really working towards making sure that everyone has a clean, healthy, and safe environment to live, work, play, and thrive. Because they've been confronting the crises of climate change and environmental racism, dealing with explosions at the Richmond Chevron refinery, uh, wildfires, and PG&E power shutoffs, uh, APEN brings a lot of lessons about just recovery to this public health crisis that we're all facing now. And since the start of the pandemic, APEN has been coordinating mutual aid, doing member-led phone wellness checks, and advancing local policy campaigns to fight for tenant protections and an eviction moratorium. A lot of the information and changes are happening every day, and the translation of the information is not happening as quickly. And I think we find that a lot of our communities have different levels of access to information, whether it's limited technology, limited to Wi-Fi, or there's just not a lot of news sources that report in their language. And so even though um, I think our local governments have been better about translating the different um, announcements that go out, the different ordinances or having fact sheets and resources, we're also dealing with communities who don't necessarily read and write in their own language. And a lot of our Asian languages are based in really um, verbal communication. And so I think there's just been a lot of challenges of knowing what's going on and then knowing how to deal with it and knowing what resources are out there. 
We also talked to someone who works at the Chinese Progressive Association, which has been organizing workers in San Francisco's Chinatown since the 1960s. Um, so my name is Ken Wang, and I'm the Policy and Compliance Counsel for the Chinese Progressive Association. Um, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, and my role with the organization uh, kind of has spanned the last 10 years. Um, I started as a volunteer and an organizing fellow back in 2010 um, as part of the Eva Lowe um, Fellowship. After that, I became a full-time staff as the civic engagement organizer uh, and the uh, economics analyst. Uh, and then I took a brief detour to go to law school, and now I'm back as the Policy and Compliance Council, where I am in charge of our kind of legal and policy compliance, um, especially around our civic engagement program. The Chinese Progressive Association, we are now, I think, a 48 year old organization that started in Chinatown in San Francisco. Um, it was started by organizers and radicals of the 60s um, that really heeded the call to serve the people and to um, kind of be in touch with what our grassroots working class uh, immigrant communities actually needed on the ground. Um, so what started out as a storefront uh, in Chinatown in the in the I Hotel and in International Hotel in San Francisco um, has now become kind of a large nonprofit um, organization uh, that serves uh, kind of immigrant communities uh, throughout San Francisco. Um, from Chinatown to the Bayview uh, to, you know, the sunset, wherever working class Chinese uh, immigrants are. Um, and we work in coalition with other kind of immigrant and um, working class uh, organizations uh, across the city uh, and across the Bay um, to kind of uplift the voices of uh, workers. Um, so obviously, you know, our work has changed a lot just as kind of the work of most community-based organizations uh, now that the pandemic has hit. Um, and, you know, one thing that um, we have seen um, and that may be obvious is that this pandemic has hit working class communities the hardest. For us, our program uh, has kind of three broad components. Um, one is our worker tenant worker center, which uh, has a, a worker center that organizes low wage workers that work in the service industry, uh, in the home care industry. Um, we also have a tenant organizing component, um, organizing folks in the uh, single room occupancy hotels in San Francisco Chinatown. Uh, and we also have a youth organizing program, Youth Mojo. Um, and one of their uh, big campaigns uh, recently has been the focusing on mental health of uh, high school students, um, San Francisco high school students. And obviously, you know, the pandemic has had major impacts on all three aspects of our programming. Uh, and we've had to shift from kind of the priorities that we set out at the beginning of the year to respond to some of the urgent need uh, of our community, including, you know, you know financial resources, uh, unemployment, unstable housing, and also the mental health impact on our youth. Ken also spoke to us about how COVID-19 is affecting the members of the Chinese Progressive Association and how, in some ways, the government response to the pandemic has left AAPI communities without sufficient support. You know, first of all, uh, 
you know, for those who don't know what um, a single room occupancy hotel is like, um, they these are buildings that were designed to accommodate uh, mostly single men who uh, were coming over um, for the gold rush. So they are 10 feet by 10 feet rooms um, in a larger building with shared kitchen and shared bathrooms. So I think the call to shelter in place um, and to socially distance um, is virtually impossible um, in this kind of space where uh, folks literally take turns and have a you know timetable for cooking in the kitchen or for using the bathroom. Um, so I think for communities uh, and our members who live in these buildings, uh, I think there's a lot of anxiety about the spread of the virus within the buildings. Um, and I think there was um, uh, an article in the San Francisco Chronicle that documented um, kind of positive cases in, in these X SRO buildings um, and has provoked a lot of yeah fear and panic um, for kind of mostly uh, families um, that you know, maybe live three or four or five to uh, a room. So I think that is uh, of kind of the utmost concern for for our members. Um, and, you know, second of all, I guess, um, folks have to pay rent and have to pay their mortgage. And, you know, a lot of folks are hurting because their um, place of work has been closed down uh, and they've been unable to navigate the unemployment system, um, you know, which is why we set up our stabilization fund just to tie people over. Um, you know, May 1st is coming up. Um, more rent is due. More bills are due. Um, so there are some, you know, very uh, kind of existential kind of concerns about being able to meet those obligations um, and you know obviously our uh, our kind of there's a lot of anxiety over the spread of the virus in um, senior homes and nursing homes um, there was a report um, that came out uh, a couple of days ago about the spread of uh, the virus in in a senior facility one of the largest in San Francisco uh, in which many of our members um, have family um, residing in um, you know the impact of this disease is felt, you know, particularly kind of acutely by the scene by seniors um, and lots of our members are seniors. And, you know, so there's the immediate health impacts of this kind of spread in in senior homes. So, I mean, I can go on. There's, you know, our youth are have recently been interviewed about the effect on their mental health um, in, you know, being locked at home uh, without, you know, uh, proper schooling um, and kind of just the uh, potential mental drama experienced uh, with being with your Asian parents for 24 hours a day. Uh, I mean, the, the list is endless um, when it comes to the impact of this pandemic. We recently established um, a COVID-19 emergency stabilization fund for um, kind of our base for the working class folks who live in Chinatown and live throughout San Francisco. Uh, I think this is kind of reflects uh, this crisis that's slowly unfolding before our eyes of kind of really high unemployment, uh, devastation of the service sector um, economy um, as a result of the shelter in place that's necessary to pr protect our health and safety, but has nevertheless meant that many of our workers uh, who were already paid very low um, or, you know, not paid at all, um, 
are, are now, you know, forced to stay home and, you know, may have lost their job because the restaurant is closed. Um, and also, you know, these workers are at the same time forced to pay rent um, and have all their other living expenses um, that they have incurred that, you know, are simply going unfulfilled um, because that because they don't have a job. Um, and because the state, while it's, you know, valiant effort to respond to this crisis by expanding the capacity of its unemployment insurance system and providing other benefits. Um, these benefits have been slow to flow to the actual impact to communities. Um, you know, for example, the EDD, uh, the department, a state agency in charge of distributing unemployment um, assistance, you know, their applications were only being accepted in English, um, right? Many of our members are monolingual and, you know, had a really tough time, uh, you know, filling out the application. So we fill, we created a unemployment uh, insurance assistance clinic as a volunteer clinic, basically, uh, so that we can help folks fill out their application so that they can get their benefits in time. So a lot of the kind of we've been highlighting the shortcomings of the existing um, infrastructure of our social safety net for a long time. And really, the pandemic has exposed the the cracks uh, and the gaping chasms um, that has allowed our community to fall through the cracks. Ken also mentioned how important past organizing has been in allowing groups like CPA to respond effectively to COVID-19. Our organization has grappled with over the years. I think it's built into the organizational DNA that the very existence of the or- organization is owed to kind of a commitment to, um, you know, organizing, not just organizing, but also soliciting the particip- participation of and the leadership of um, the communities that, you know, we organize in, right? So um, when I was an organizer, uh, we had... Uh, leadership committee uh, of former and current kind of restaurant workers um, that were part of this large effort to uh, document wage theft in the restaurant industry. And, you know, leadership development from our grassroots base is a primary uh, objective um, of our organizing program. And we've cultivated kind of groups of leaders that uh, help us determine our campaign priorities that um, engage in the you know civic engagement and voter turnout work by you know doing the door knocking and the phone banking and ultimately the endorsing um, of ballot measures. Uh, so you know it, it's really kind of grassroots voices are built into the very structures of of our organization. Part of our COVID response um, has been to be even more attentive to the needs of the community, right and. That starts with kind of the leaders that we have on the ground that, you know, they reflect the concerns that their own family is feeling at this moment. Um, and that's how, I mean, it's it's a constant kind of, you know, uh, tug and pull um, between kind of the different priorities. But I think we, we are hoping that what we've done in the past um, and the structures that we've put in place uh, can sustain uh, the kind of on the ground, um, close to the ground uh, effort that we've been able to do so far. Both APEN and CPA have also created mutual aid funds, providing direct support to their members. We're not trying to do charity and just like give out money and resources to people for the sake of it, but really because there are huge failings in our systems to really address the needs of our community. And what we know is that our community is really good at taking care of each other. So in a way we get to practice this 
um, radical redistribution of wealth and um, thinking about our resources and what do we actually need to survive. And if trying to pivot our fund into how we were going to distribute it, we were doing weekly uh, wellness check calls with our members and really telling them kind of like the information that we knew was coming out that we're having this fund for those who need it, that they should let their family members know um, and really trying to, you know, kind of do that organizing with the people we had contact with so that they could also let their contacts and their networks know that there are organizations like us and many others around the Bay trying to support folks who need it. And then, um, you know, within just six days of just word of mouth, because we had this tiered outreach process. So in just six days of word of mouth through phone calls um, to maybe like half of our membership, we already received over 130 applications and requests for funds. Like both of us, Ken and Alvina are thinking about how race and racism makes this a difficult moment for AAPI communities and, and individuals. I mean, I think what is true about a lot of I mean, what we're all experiencing now, and especially for working class and like low income families is when your hours are reduced, your income's reduced, and then your rent stays the same, <laughs> then how do you make decisions about what you pay for? And I think that's one of the hardest decisions that they have to go through around, you know, paying rent or paying for groceries or extra medical costs. I think what we know about our communities um, living in um, extended pollution, like by a refinery and having increased rates of asthma, their uh, immune systems are compromised and um, they're just a lot more vulnerable to different diseases, be it COVID or other things. And so there's just increased medical costs in these moments. And then on top of that, I know we're facing a lot of anti-Asian hate, um, a lot of China blaming right now. And we're still mm -hmm. in this um, political consciousness that, you know, when you say Chinese people, you really think all Asians, whether they're East Asian, South Asian or whatever. And um, you just kind of blanket blame this whole population that is in the same struggle with everyone else. And so in addition to the shelter in place ordinances and quarantining and really figuring out how to um, live under these conditions with really limited access to sanitation um, or cleaning uh, supplies and things, you're also asking people to go out and keep buying their groceries while people are side-eyeing them or getting verbally yeah. harassed or even physically harassed in these moments. And so people can't work, they can't pay their bills, and they don't even feel safe going out in, out on the streets to get their basic needs. And, you know, I think there's a way that we joke about things to not feel the pain as much, but, you know, so many of our members and so many of my colleagues even are just joking about, like, I don't even feel like I can sneeze out in public without someone saying something, um, which is just a really weird place to be in this moment where you, where on the flip side, there's also a lot of like beautiful mutual aid organizing that's happening and a lot of moments for us to recognize that we're in this together. And so you have this really stark polarizing view of 
we're in this together and we want to work together and we're working on like our different networks that we have to support each other. And we also want to keep othering and dividing and blaming and shaming other people in, in whole countries um, because we're mm -hmm. just in this really harsh global pandemic and predicament. You know, I would not be the first to kind of surface all of the ugly, ugly stories that's come out from all over the country of Asian Americans um, experiencing hate-based incidents um, from kind of stray remarks to physical violence, right? And that must be condemned in kind of all of its forms. And kind of while we do that, um, we also need to realize that this type of uh, violence and rhetoric um, obviously did not begin at the start of this pandemic, and it's not uh, just uh, targeted towards Asian Americans. Um, and I think we have to connect it to the kind of ugly history of racism in this country and of xenophobia in this country um, that has uh, kind of uh, been given um, that's been given the spotlight um, under Donald Trump, but has simmered below the surface for a long time. Um, and without kind of a broad, kind of broad-based community reconciliation um, and acknowledgement of the trauma of racism in this country, including the legacy of slavery um, and the legacy of kind of the Bracero program and um, kind of use of migrant workers and exploitation of migrant workers in this country. I think we're, we won't be able to have kind of a full reckoning um, of the violence that's being enacted on kind of our community today. So, uh, you know, as CPA, um, we are keenly aware uh, of this history. Um, you know, our founders um, came from a movement for black power and for liberation for all. Um, so, you know, we are proud to continue that tradition and which is why we continue to work in coalition with um, other marginalized communities, other communities of color, right, to demand justice, um, not just for Asian Americans, not just for Chinese people, um, not just for immigrants, um, but for all, uh, you know, marginalized communities um, across the world. Despite the toll of the virus and the ongoing threats facing their communities, both Lavina and Ken also emphasize that this is a moment where it is important for organizers and communities to dream about change and about how society can ultimately be transformed. Envisioning kind of a different future has always been um, a part of the driver for why we continue to do our work, right? I think it would be um, very, uh, very disheartening um, to kind of constantly grind um, through the kind of the everyday struggles of our community without, um, you know, introducing a vision for a different kind of more just society. And I think the pandemic um, has really exposed the the fault lines um, in which kind of the system has designed um, to let certain people fall through, right? Let working class, um, you know, frontline workers, uh, you know, become essential workers who have to risk their life and limb without protective equipment, um, while before the pandemic they were considered disposable, right? I think this that's just one example for how um, you know, this crisis has really shifted um, society's thinking. And I think as we 
think about emerging from a post-pandemic world um, or emerging into a post-pandemic world, um, I think we really need to examine where these uh, deliberate design flaws of our current system um, need to be mended or uh, revised or abolished altogether. And, you know, that includes kind of the, you know, the people doing kind of the critical care work um, for our elders and for the most vulnerable in our society, um, you know, being paid low wages, right? That starts, um, that would be kind of a start. Uh, that would, uh, another would be kind of thinking about how uh, kind of service work is valued in our society and how uh, kind of you know, pay, uh, how their wages are not commensurate with their kind of, uh, you know, their importance. Um, and then also imagining how a world free of xenophobia and, and racism. And I think this crisis perhaps um, has really uplifted an ugly strain of, uh, you know, anti-Asian racism, um, you know, recalling kind of yellow peril of your um, and, you know, has resulted in violent attacks um, on our community members, on um, Asian American businesses, um, and really thinking about how, you know, and of course, uh, with Trump's uh, kind of immigration ban and just ugliness, um, I think we must do more to push back, um, but also to not from a defensive perspective and talk about how, oh, how American we are and how we must do more to prove our Americanness, right? But to uh, rework the notion of Americanness to include kind of all of our experiences. Um, and now how exactly we do that, I don't have the answer for you, um, but I just know that something must be done. I think the main part to recognize is that whatever happens you know quote unquote after the pandemic is not going to be the same as what it was before and i think that poses both a huge opportunity to actually lean into alternative solutions that we've been trying to push forward um or it could get a lot worse and we're in this moment now in our organizing and in our community building work of really saying that, you know, the system wasn't working for us before the pandemic, and it's failing us now during the pandemic. And so what do we want to come out of this moment really being able to do? What kind of economy do we want to have? What do we actually truly believe in around housing as a human right? That everyone deserves clean drinking water, that everyone deserves access to healthy food, um, and that it shouldn't be this uh, depends how much you can pay and how much you can work in order to get those basic needs met. And so, you know, on a really local level and kind of in the emergent settings, when we were first in shelter in place and, and things were happening, we were really looking at, you know, eviction moratoriums and making sure that people don't lose their homes or get kicked out or harassed in this moment where we actually need people to stay indoors. Mm -hmm. And then with unsheltered communities, how do we ensure that they actually have safe places to live that doesn't actually increase the spread and actually recognizes that folks who have been unsheltered also deserve dignity of housing. 
um, and quality housing. And so I think we're in this moment now where we get to shift and say what we've always been saying around housing is a human right. And what does that look like? Can we have tenant ownership? Can we have real tenant and resident engagement in the places that we live that actually center the needs of um, our folks instead of the needs of um, profiting corporations and corporate landlords that are just looking to make more money off of the housing market. I'm so glad we got to hear from Alvina and Ken and the leadership that they're bringing to this time. It's also important to note that both Ken and Alvina do a particular kind of activist work, working with larger nonprofits that have a lot of resources, but also sometimes certain limitations. Um, so one thing I actually wanted to ask you about is about another campaign that you've been working on, which showcases the way that organizers and activists can mobilize and push for change outside of the context of larger organizations. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been working on, Sydney? Thanks, Andrew. I'm working on a mutual aid and legal aid effort that is a part of the Stand with Nanhe campaign. And that campaign has been primarily volunteer-led with support from larger organizations uh, like CPA, uh, where the um, Youth Mojo members were really working on this campaign, as well as Asian Law Caucus, um, where their youth members with Aspire were also working with us. So in 2015, I linked up with other organizers to join a defense campaign for Nanhe Joe. Uh, she is a Korean undocumented mother and survivor. And uh, when she fled her abusive partner with their daughter, uh, she was taken into ICE detention, charged with child abduction and separated from her daughter. And uh, because thousands of people were got involved in this campaign um, to support Nanhi. She was released from detention, but she doesn't have custody of her daughter. Uh, with the pandemic, she has been out of work because her restaurant job has been on hold. And so our campaign has gone together again to make sure that she has support, access to um, mutual aid and legal aid. Uh, the Stand with Nanhee campaign is a part of the Survived and Punished Project, which engages in defense campaigns to support the power of criminalized survivors uh, in order to highlight how systems of punishment that include prisons and immigration detention are also connected with uh, violence against trans, queer, and undocumented women of color. I really appreciate that, Sydney. And I also think that that really ties into something else that you and me and Ken and Alvina have all been thinking and talking about in different conversations, which is how do we build a better society and more just structures, you know, not just during the pandemic, but also afterwards. I was actually going to ask you, Sydney, is there anything that you're thinking about right now as we look to the future, even as we try to confront all of the really difficult things in front of us right now in the moment? Yeah, I'm definitely thinking about how with this crisis, what people view as common sense uh, and how society should work is really um, disrupted by this time where, where the pandemic has heightened the contradictions of how, how our society is set up. And 
and this is a moment to really reshape how these systems are are structured um, in ways that are more just. I'm also thinking about the surge in anti-Asian racism and xenophobia and how we can't talk about that without also talking about anti-Blackness and how that's also been really punctuated by the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey and the legacy of violence against um, against all communities of color uh, in the United States, in particular um, Black folks. And, and I think this moment highlights that Asian Americans can't just talk to ourselves. We also need to show up against racism wherever we see it. I think that's a really great point, Sydney. And that's something that I think I know that you're bringing up now, and I know that Ken and Alvina mentioned too. I think that's something that I've been thinking about, which, which is similar, is that I'm hoping that this is a moment where Asian Americans can envision and participate in broader coalitions. I think that for some Asian people, this has been maybe one of the first times they've seen such widespread and systematic racism towards our communities. But I also think that it's also very clear that this is not, you know, an exception in the history of the United States. This is something that has happened uh, to many communities. You know, there's been hatred directed towards Muslim American communities uh, over the last couple of years. There's been consistent, uh, there's been consistent aggression and hatred and discrimination towards African American communities throughout the history of the United States. And I think that I'm hoping that, and I'm hoping that Asian Americans and, and Pacific Islanders can really use this moment when we're coming together to support our own communities, to also be thinking about how we can be working in tandem and supportive of other people of color and their struggles too, because I think that's going to be ultimately how we're going to end up with a, in a better place. So I, I really appreciate that. I think we've heard a lot today from, from our speakers and, and from each other, and I, I'm really appreciative of that. And here are a few ways you can plug in and support their work. And we'll include more info in the show notes. Number one, you can subscribe to COVID-19 news updates from APEN for Bay Area, California, national and international news and resources. Number two, you can consider sharing your check and donate to the mutual aid funds to support Nanhe Joe, APEN, and CPA. I can't stress enough the importance of undocu funds. Uh, for undocumented immigrants who can't fall back on the safety net at this moment. And we'll include resources for those who need to access those funds in the show notes also. It was really great talking to you today. Thanks, Andrew. Good to talk to you too.